Welcome to Authors Unedited, a podcast with Dominic Stevenson. So hello everyone, my name is Dominic Stevenson and I am here with the latest episode of the Authors Unedited podcast. This will be our second episode this year, so I hope that 2020 is continuing to bring you joy and happiness, and if my calculations are correct, it's Valentine's Day tomorrow, but it might not be, but I hope you all have a nice time, whether you're spending it with loved ones or friends. And I have a very special guest here today who is currently on a book tour, so please could you introduce yourself, very special guest? (laughs) Thank you. Hello. Uh, My name is Helen Sedgwick, um, and I'm currently on a book tour for my third novel, which is also my first crime novel, When the Dead Come Calling. So can you tell us a bit about about When the Dead Come Calling? Um, I can. so it is set in a, uh, in a very isolated coastal village in the north of England. Um, and the book opens in a, in a cave. It seems to be quite a creepy cave that's uh, sort of filled with these prayers scratched into the wall and crucifixes and mouldy dolls and things like that. Um, and there's someone hiding in the cave and we've no idea why. Um, and I've started with that because that's, um, that's where I started writing the book, which is based the cave itself is based very loosely on St Ninian's Cave in the Scottish Borders, um, where I went in, oh, must have been 2016. Um, and I had no idea what I was going to write next. I'd finished my first two novels, The Comet Seekers, and The Comet Seekers had just come out, and I'd finished writing The Growing Season. So I was kind of looking for my next project, but also um, sort of freaking out a little bit about being published and being very visible and not liking that and wanting to go and hide somewhere. Um, and I found this cave and I thought this would be a really cool setting for a creepy book. But at that point I didn't know it was going to be a crime book. So, um, sorry. Yeah, I can keep going but ask me a question. No, sorry, I was <laughs> going to say for, for people who may not have read your first two, yeah. is creepy a divergence from, from what you've done before? Yes and no. I think probably yes. Um, so The Comet Seekers was a book about an astronomer who, uh, it sort of opens in Antarctica um, and there are two complete strangers meeting in a research base. Um, and the, the story then loops back over a thousand years to tell them what's happened in their lives and in their ancestors' lives to bring them both to this point. Um, and it's also about an astronomer, Roisin, who has left her home and someone she loves in order to pursue her dreams. And it's about the conflict that she feels because of that. Um, so it's got historical bits and it's People sometimes call it a romance, although I would personally dispute that. Um, it's about science, and it's also got a sort of ghost story running through it, but they're very friendly ghosts. Um, they're ghosts that, that people love, so it's kind of a nice thing to see them for the characters. Um, and then after that I wrote The Growing Season, which was speculative fiction slash feminist sci-fi. Again, quite hard to sort of pigeonhole. Um, creepy in that it was about a biotechnology that doesn't yet but soon will exist, which is an external womb, um, and it was about what that would mean for, for women, for men, for all of us, for humanity, when our biotechnology means that we no longer need to reproduce in the way that we have up until now. So people said they found it creepy, but not in a kind of horror story way, more in a kind of what is technology going to do to our bodies kind of way. 
So when the dead come calling is quite different. And I didn't know what it was going to be when I started writing it. I thought maybe it was going to be a ghost story of the creepy, horrifying variety. Um, and then it turned into a crime novel, partly because bodies started appearing in my narrative. Um, and and what, there's a series of fairly brutal murders happening in the present day of the story. But to understand what's going on, the police realise they have to look back to the past. That seems to be a theme running through crime writers that I've spoken to when... I spoke to Claire Askew, who um, wrote all the hidden truths. She said that when she wrote that, it didn't start off as a, a crime novel, and, and you sort of reflect on the same thing. Mm. Do, do you think people find crime within their within the worlds they create, or or do do people set out to to write crime? I, I think some authors set out deliberately to write a crime novel. Uh, I don't think Claire and I are those writers. <laughs> um, I also think, to be honest, that crime writing sells really well, and so publishers like the idea of pitching a book as a crime novel. And to be honest, mine could have been pitched in various different ways. <laughs> it could, I think, have been literary fiction. It definitely could have been a sort of ghost story slash folk horror, um, and they went with crime, and it looks very much like a crime book, I think, because that makes it quite... Uh, easy to sell and easy to position in the bookshops and things like that. So there's, um, there's that kind of side of things. And I think Claire's book has something similar. It's, it's a very political book, it's yeah. a very feminist book, it's a very literary book. It could have been put in all, sorts of um, yeah. in all sorts of boxes, if you like. It's not just crime, it's many things beyond that. Um, so it makes sense in a way that neither of us set out to write crime because we wrote, wrote something that's different from your bog-standard crime. Um, although I must also say I don't know what bog standard crime is because crime fiction is able to tackle so many huge subjects in so many different ways and it can overlap with so many other genres um, that I think it can be quite an exciting, uh, I'm trying not to call it a genre but I don't know what else to call it, can be quite an exciting community to be in because crime writing can do so many different things, I would say. Uh, and I, I can't even remember the original question. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I can now. But I mean, I, I, I went to the Bloody Scotland uh, Festival this year and, and that, that was very much my takeaway that, that from crime you have people like... I can't even remember the name. The lady who wrote the thousand-word book... Uh, thousand-word, thousand-page book. And then has... Uh, that's such, a new report? Yes, and has subsequently tried to slam every other writer that's ever written a book <laughs> in in history. Um, but yeah, but the, it, it seemed much bigger than murder. It, it mm -hmm. seemed, as you say, like it took in everything. And I think yeah. that's a real positive because it's sort of a springboard for engaging people. But mm -hmm. it takes people so many places. Yeah. And crime can mean all sorts of things. And generally, writers want to write about something, so you need things to happen. And one of the things, if you're going in fairly dark, challenging places, which most writers want to do, one of those things that happen is crime. Um, and so it allows you to ask, what's gone wrong? Why are people doing this? What's happening to our society? Which are the big questions that I think writers are generally asking, and that's kind of why we're driven to write, really, to try and write our way to some kind of answer or at least more questions in my case. <laughs> and the, this first one, When the Dead Come Calling, mm -hmm. is part one of a trilogy, if I've read... Yes. If I've done my research appropriately. <laughs> uh, then, yes, yeah, it's, it's part one of a trilogy. Do you already have 
books turned through in your head? Have you started them? Have you written them? Uh, yes, it's a it's a trilogy in uh, in the complete sense of the word, in that it's a kind of in my mind, it's an overarching story that needs three books to reach a conclusion. Um, so, in a way, I approach writing the three books in the way that I would normally approach writing one book, which is to say that I've got some things in mind, and I know the ending, and I know kind of roughly the shape of the change that's going to take place over the course of the three books. Um, but also, my writing process tends to be fairly organic, so I don't quite know how I'm going to get to the change or how I'm going to reach the ending. Um, but I do sort of have a shape in mind, and I just go with that. Um, book two is now finished. Um, well, I've got a first draft of book two that I'm currently editing. Um, so I know more or less what's happening in that one. Book three, I haven't started yet. Um, and I don't know where it will start, but I do know where it will finish. Um, so I'm always kind of writing to the end, or I'm sort of writing over, over the hill towards the end of my books, and in this case, my trilogy. And so something, uh, again, that you've mentioned, you mentioned it in your first book and in this trilogy that you seem to try and encompass whole worlds, like that you go back a thousand years and you look at how people came and I personally find, well, I love stuff like that, historical non-fiction and, and things like that. And what is that, where, where does that come from? Because I, when I was a kid, I'd look at things like Tolkien and go, I've got no idea how you possibly created those worlds. And more recently with sort of the games, Game of Thrones series, mm -hmm. the, the whole worlds. And how, as a writer, do you tackle a thousand years? <laughs> um, I don't know, really. I don't know what the answer is. Um, before I wanted to be a writer, I was a scientist. And before I wanted to be a scientist, I wanted to be an archeologist. That was one of my earliest things. So I've always been kind of obsessed with history. And I've always tried to imagine what it was like in the past. And I've always been really into reading historical books. Um, so I suppose some of it is just that I've spent a lot of time studying them. I did kind of classics and things like that at school as well. So I spent a lot of time studying ancient Greek, ancient Rome. And it becomes a sort of, sort of backdrop to your imagination somehow. Um, so I'm, I'm often looking back in my books. When I first wrote The Comet Seekers, it didn't just go over a thousand years. It was meant to be going back over about a hundred thousand years. I wanted to write about the Ice Age and the evolution of humanity and, and all these kinds of things. And, um, and my editor sort of said to me, we need to rein this in a bit, Helen. Can we, <laughs> can we cut some of the historical bits and just focus on something that's a bit more manageable? And she was absolutely right to say that because um, the book was, was, was huge and kind of sprawling. Um, but in When the Dead Come Calling, in this trilogy, in fact, I am going to be going back a lot further in history. Um, so the first book goes back 250 years, and the second book goes back to Celtic times, so I'm going back 2,000 years. And in the third book, I'm going to be going back to the Neolithic, I think. Um, so, but, but how do I do that? I don't know. I think I'm just really interested in it. So I read loads of stuff about it, and I watch loads of stuff on TV and documentaries and things. And I, I never take notes, and I never think of it as doing research. I basically don't do research. What I do is get really fascinated by a subject and then spend ages reading and watching and learning everything I can about it, because it's interesting to me. And then it sort of seeps in, and then I write a book, and it hopefully comes out in sort of trickles and natural ways into the story. So I suppose I don't do any research, but also I'm constantly researching is probably the answer. 
Um, but that's not really an answer either. No, no, no. The world builds up around you, I yeah. think. There's a no, sort I, of... I think that totally is the answer because mm. I'm sure, I mean, I know I do, and I'm sure many listeners do, but I'm the kind of person who'll read the back of a cereal box mm-hmm. and read all the cooking instructions because I love the experience of taking in mm-hmm. knowledge. And whether that knowledge be, I know that those veggie burgers need to be on 200 degrees for <laughs> 15 to 18 minutes, but it'll be 19 because our oven's rubbish. Mm-hmm. Or, as you say, something bigger and deeper. Well, I really love them. I'm sure many of our listeners do. And you mentioned, and forgive me if I misheard or had this wrong, but in, in the cave there are prayers mm-hmm. scratched on the wall. And... Your, your background as a scientist mm-hmm. and I'm curious as to what the relationship between without spoiler in the book and knowing too much but prayer and carved onto the cave wall wouldn't have been done when we had the scientific knowledge or even mm-hmm. a lot of the scientific knowledge we have now so wh- where do they sort of intersect mm-hmm. for you in, in your books? Um, that's a really good question um, I think I think they're probably intersecting in my brain, in me as a person, to begin with. Um, because I've always had this sort of very scientific side and also this very creative side that sometimes is music and, and it, then it became writing. But there's always been a sort of side of me that wanted to imagine and, uh, and just let crazy things happen in my mind. And also a side of me that was very logical and very based on observation and what I can measure and what I can prove and understanding something in a really intricate way. Um, and I don't think those things are, are mutually exclusive at all. I think we are all doing both of those things. And I think actually they can fuel one another um, in a really interesting way. And I think that's kind of what happens to me. So the science is feeding the writing and then the writing is kind of feeding back into this sort of observation of the world around us. Um, and then that feeds back into imagining ways it can be different or ways it has been in the past or where it could be on other planets or whatever that is. Um, so I think, I think there is something intrinsically creative but also quite magical about what we can learn from science. Um, and I also think that science can be inspired by what we imagine and asking questions as we do when we're imagining things is one of the things that drives people to want to do science. So I think the two are very interrelated and I don't really separate them in my life and in my brain. And so they're not separated in the books, um, really. And the result is this sort of uh, juxtaposition of science and logic with, with belief, with imagination, with the supernatural, with, uh, with things that don't seem to be at all sciencey. Um, and I just really like writing in that area for some reason. And there's not exactly science in the crime book, but it's, I suppose I've replaced the science by writing a police procedural in a way. So there's a very kind of logical approach that's coming from the police. It's a very evidence-based approach. That's what it must be. And at the same time, the crimes have this very supernatural element to them. Um, and the solution of the crime maybe is going to take something, some kind of leap beyond what is strictly observable into something that we can imagine um, and I just always seem to find myself drawn to that in between place mm. and I don't really know but I like it there <laughs> and I suppose that sort of leads on that like you were a scientist and now you're a writer mm-hmm. was that what, what kind of transition was that did you work as a scientist while writing did you science 
and then stop one day and then <laughs> write or? Um, the first one, um, so I was working as a scientist, I was uh, based in Glasgow in the electrical engineering department, I was studying uh, sort of bioengineering at the time, so I was studying uh, how to isolate and study individual cancer cells uh, in a microscopic environment. Um, which was really fascinating and worthwhile. Uh, it was cancer research that I was doing. Um, and I loved what I was trying to achieve, and I loved talking about it. Um, but the day-to-day -day reality of it um, was pretty hard. I was working in a clean room, so sort of full body suit in unnatural light all the time. I was working with some pretty nasty chemicals. Uh, I was using HF, which is uh, an acid. Uh, did you see Breaking Bad? Yes. Yes. You know, in the first series, when they try to dissolve a body with acid in the bath and it like falls down, yeah. you know the scene I mean? Yeah. That's, that's HF, so that's what oh. I was using on a daily basis. So it's pretty nasty, it'll kind of seep into your skin and you won't know it's there, and it looks and smells like water, and then eight hours later it dissolves your bones. Oh. Um, so obviously you're wearing quite a lot of protective gloves and clothes, um, but I just found that I was getting home every day with a splitting headache and waking up in the night uh, with fear that I, my bones were going to start dissolving. And um, I realised that that wasn't the kind of day-to-day -day reality that I wanted to live in. Um, even though I, I felt that the work was really valuable and, um, and important and it's really nice to feel like you're doing something worthwhile and, and fascinating. Um, but anyway, uh, so I kind of decided I needed to change into something and I didn't know what that would be. And I started doing all these evening classes, um, literally everything I could think of. I, I, wanted, I did life drawing and violin making and learning French and Indian dancing and Thai cookery, literally everything I could think of to try and find something that I would enjoy and I could potentially go on to do instead of science. Because the thing about science is that you have this nice career path, you know, you're, you're science, you go to physics, so you go to university and you study physics and then you can do a PhD, then you can get a job. It's not always that easy, but in your mind and in the, in the sort of minds of careers advisors at the time, there was this very obvious career path you could follow. Um, and then when you stray off that, you can like, well, what on earth am I going to do next? Anyway, I did an evening class in creative writing and I loved it. Um, my tutor, Nick Brooks, suggested that I um, apply for a master's in creative writing, which was being run at Glasgow University at the time. Um, so I applied for it and amazingly got a place. And I spoke to my boss in engineering and he let me go part-time for the year. So I had this whole year of being half a scientist and a member of staff at the university and half a writer and a student at the university. Um, so I could try, try it out as a life for a while, which is really good to be able to do that. Um, and by the end of that year, I kind of knew that I wanted to write, so I left science and then spent about a decade uh, working in cafes and teaching and editing and doing a bunch of totally different freelance jobs and whatever I could to try and stay afloat while I wrote novels to try and become a writer. So, as well as curing cancer, trying <laughs> to cure cancer, as well as worrying that your bones are going to dissolve, mm. you also studied, also became a writer, and I, from what I've heard, you, you, you've gone through on with that, and then your, the, the first book you wrote didn't become your debut. Can you mm -hmm. talk to us about how you went from student to various other things, to writer, to someone who put it all in a drawer and started again? Yeah. Um, well, the first novel I wrote was while I was studying for Masters. 
Um, I think I wrote about half of it that year. At that point, I sort of thought maybe I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't really know what I wanted to say yet. So I wrote a book that was about a group of students at university, and there was kind of a love triangle, and there was kind of a thrillery element to it, and, and someone ended up dead, and I was kind of throwing all this stuff in, but I didn't really know what it was about or what I was trying to say. Um, and that first one was reasonably easy to let go of. It formed the portfolio for my Emlet, um, so I felt that it had served a purpose for that. And I kind of saw it as my learning to write a novel. novel. Um, so it took me another year, I think, to finish it. So it was two or three, I can't remember, years of my life to create it. But I was able to let it go reasonably easily um, and start the next one. Uh, the next one I thought was going to be the one, it was a book called Trust, um, which obviously has not been published either. Um, but I knew a bit more wanted to, what I wanted to write about there. Um, and I, I wrote and wrote that for about three years, and I thought that was going to be the one. Um, and I got an agent, which was like, yay, and she sent it out to a bunch of publishers who said, mm, no, sorry, um, and it didn't, didn't get published. Um, and she eventually kind of said, well, you might need to write another, another book. And that was the hard one, because I kind of thought I'd already done my practice book. And then there was this other whole novel, which was apparently also a practice book. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll try something different. And I started to write short stories. So two novels in the bottom drawer. I'd been doing this now for five or six years. Um, I was teaching creative writing, um, which, I, which I loved doing and was enjoying. And I was editing, which I loved doing and was enjoying, but I wasn't really making it as a writer. So I started to write short stories, um, and I sent a few out to magazines, which was a nice little boost, but didn't really give me what I was looking for. And I put together this whole short story collection, and uh, that didn't get published either. <laughs> but what it did do is uh, uh, win me a Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award mm -hmm. um, with some of the short stories in there. So I went off for a year and did that, which was really, really useful and helpful. Mostly because at the end of that year, I realised that A, I wanted to write another novel, and that be one of the short stories in that collection, which was called Searching for Comets, was in fact the novel that I wanted to write, and I just hadn't realised it. Um, so fast forward another three years, Searching for Comets became The Comet Seekers, which is my debut novel. Um, but that's not quite the whole story, because actually, so third novel, fourth whole book, um, and I sent it to the agent that I got from the previous novel, um, and she basically told me she thought it couldn't couldn't be published, and that I needed to go away and write another one. Um, and that was a point when I thought, I've been doing this for 10 years now, and I think this is the one. And I sort of had, by that point, enough confidence and enough awareness, I suppose, of my own work and my position within, uh, within the community. I, I kind of thought, actually, I, if I believe in this, and I think it probably is something worthwhile there. So I had to go through this terrible process of sort of leaving one agent and then starting over again to look for a new one. Um, but it does have a happy ending because I found a new one um, and the book became my debut 10 years after I started writing. I feel so anxious just from, just from hearing that story. <laughs> that, that, that seems so much more remarkable because I'd been told when I told people that I was, had the opportunity to speak to you to ask about that because most people don't want to talk about the book that didn't make it mm -hmm. and there were two novels in a short story collection oh, yeah. and an agent that fell by the wayside yeah. who didn't make it into the success you are today that just seems quite 
the, the journey and and then you found not one but two agents something that people find, often find remarkably difficult and was that obviously more the second time because that is the one that with regards to a book on the shelf paid off how, how, how was that process? Um, well by that time I'd been working as a sort of writer, teacher, editor, literary person in various different different ways in Scotland. Um, and I was very lucky that one of my close friends was Kirsty Logan, who had uh, already had an agent herself and her first book was coming out. Um, so I was telling her this whole story. We were good friends, so she knew what happened. And she kind of immediately said, well, I'm going to put you in touch with my agent instead. Let's try that. Um, and that's Catherine Summerhays, who is now an agent for us both. Um, so in a way, it's sort of getting the second agent was easier because I was in a community that could advise me and that could support me and that, in fact, could help me. Um, whereas earlier on in my career, I felt much more isolated and kind of lost and I didn't know where to go or who to try. And, you know, I went through that phase of just sending things out kind of blindly to slush piles and... Um, and so in a way, getting that second agent was much easier because I felt like I had that support around me and particularly from, oh, I will always be deeply grateful to Kirsty for that introduction. Um, so that helped. But before that, certainly when, I, when my original agent came back and said that she didn't think the book was publishable, it was uh, really difficult. Like I fell into this kind of the pit of despair, I was calling it at the time. <laughs> um, because you think, well, what do I do? It's, it's so unusual to have an agent. I'm so lucky to have an agent. Can I seriously walk away from that? And am I deluding myself? Am I just being massively arrogant to think this book is any good? Or, you know, uh, it's a very difficult decision to make. Um, so I'm very glad that I had to make that decision sort of 10 years into my career, at which point I felt like I had the self-belief and also the support network to sort of take that jump. Uh, I don't think that answered your question again. But no, 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 but it's, it's, it, it's, it's incredibly powerful to hear because I, through this podcast, I've run a spoken word night for five years. I know lots of writers who have to plough on and, mm -hmm. and I also know lots of people who have decided that they haven't got it in them mm -hmm. to plough on, but it's... It's really interesting to hear about the silver linings down the road and how one goes about finding them. Yes, I think having knowing other writers is yeah. so important. Um, I mean, I absolutely hate the term networking and try never to use it. And if somebody says there's a networking event, I'll be like, I live in the Highlands, I can't come. Ha! Um, but there is something to do with having a circle of people around you who are your good friends and who you trust and who are also writers in the same world. So you don't feel quite so alone. And so there are people you can talk to when the bad stuff happens and who can maybe, you know, suggest another direction or someone else to talk to or uh, sort of just give you that sort of... It is, it is a support network in a way um, that a lot of writers don't have because it's very, very solitary and you can spend an awful lot of time on your own sort of going quietly bonkers because mm. it is so isolating and it's so hard. And the rejections are almost constant for, for all of us. And it, that doesn't stop after publication either, you know, you, sort of, you get a book out and then suddenly there's horrible reviews coming in and people hate your book and the one star Amazon and then you don't know if the next one is going to be any good or if, you know, so it's, it's this sort of constant battle of, uh, 
sort of picking yourself up after the blows, you know, and that's a lot easier if you've got some friends to help and who've also been through it. I would also say at this point, one of the things I find really fascinating about being a writer and about writers in general, not myself, but the, the sort of the type of person that becomes a writer, is that to be a writer, you have to be really in touch with your emotions. You have to have a huge amount of empathy. You have to be hurt by things and be vulnerable to things because that's what humanity is, right? And if you're going to write convincingly about humanity, you have to be able to feel all those emotions. And then at the same time, we're in a career where you have to try and develop the thickest skin imaginable because you're constantly getting bashed, you know? <laughs> it's such a weird mix of skills and it's really hard um, to sort of keep the balance of that without either ending up feeling really rubbish or sort of losing the part of you, the vulnerable part of you that is where the writing comes from. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and you said earlier that you have worked on some literary magazines. Mm. And I always wonder, um, on, on the episode where I spoke to Chris McQueer, he said that he didn't feel literary magazines were for him. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's a lot of people who maybe spend more time sending stuff out to magazines than they do writing mm-hmm. and but as someone who works on the inside so what value do you see in a literary magazine for helping people's careers for mm-hmm. spreading the word so um my answer would be different at different times actually over the last 10 years i must be honest um for me a huge value of literary magazines was that it was great running them i really loved it i loved being an editor and literary magazines was where i learned sort of how to edit and where I realised what an editor did and that I wanted to do that. Um, so I think there's, I mean, I think running one is just some of the best fun you can have if, if you like stories and writers. Um, it's also, I think, a really good way to meet your community and to feel like you're giving something back and that you're part of something and that you're building something. Um, and I think these are really important things that give us what a lot of what we need as human beings sometimes, a sense of being part of something that is being produced. Um, and again, if you just sat on your own writing and that writing is going nowhere, you can lack that feeling of, of sort of purpose or, or progress, perhaps. Um, so running literary magazines is really, really good fun. Highly recommend it. Um, I think it's great for the community. I think it's really good to have a place where you can go and see who's doing what and what's happening and what new things are being written and where are the new voices coming from and what are people excited about and what are people wanting to challenge right now. So reading them, also fantastic. Um, for writers, I think it is really important to have somewhere where you can make your first steps into being published. To have that first feeling of that I'm sending this out to the world and people are actually going to read it. People who aren't, you know, my mum or whatever. Um, so it's really important to have that for sort of emerging writers. Um, and it's a wonderful feeling. I still remember getting my first acceptance into a literary magazine and how great that felt to finally be in print in a real magazine that was going to be bought by people. And, and um, that's, that's a wonderful feeling. But I do think you're right that sometimes... Um, you can spend an awful lot of time just sending things out to magazines, like years and years, and not actually progressing beyond a certain point. Um, so I think if you want to be a short story writer, once you've got a few few sh- short stories published in places you really respect, you might then want to think about 
putting together a collection and moving on to the next stage. And I suppose I'm just a big one for moving on. So literary magazines have a really important part in a larger picture, but they're not the whole picture. Um, so I think kind of once you've once you've done that, maybe think about what you want to do next rather than staying in that forever. Um, but that said, I also think uh, I also think it can be a tremendously valuable learning experience if you send stuff to literary magazines and you get rejections, but really useful rejections that tell you why you're getting rejected from editors, like that can be incredibly valuable. Um, and I've had some feedback like that that was really, really useful. Um, and also, I mean, let's face it, basically, if you want to be a writer, you just need to read loads. So by all means, send your work out to literary magazines, but read them too. You know, that's the main thing. I think the main value of a literary magazine is not as a tool for writers, it's as a thing to be read. It's for the readers. Um, so, yeah, reach readers, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's totally wrong, because I think if every magazine that... If every magazine sold as many copies as it had submissions, mm -hmm. I'm sure we wouldn't spend a lot of our time talking about the death of literary magazines <laughs> as, a, exactly. as, a, as a different entity. Yes, I think when, when you get to the stage that... Um, you've got more writers wanting to be in a magazine than you have people reading it and all the readers are in fact writers who are in it then you've got a problem because that's not that's not what we need we need to be reaching beyond our circle I think for literary magazines um, and and when that happens when you do have that reach uh, it's amazingly valuable um, and also literary magazines are places that will take a lot of risk and publish things that are quite raw or, or that would be very difficult to publish in the mainstream and things like that. So it can be a real sort of breeding ground for ideas from that point of view, um, which is great if you get, when you get the right combination of editors and timing and, and position and everything, reputation. Um, so I love literary magazines, but yeah, they do have to be read. That's what they're for. And, and spe speaking of reaching a wider audience, you're currently in the middle of a book tour for really? When the Dead Come Calling. How is that? I mean, I've never I, I've <laughs> held my partner's bags on a book tour, but I've never <laughs> I've never sat on stage. So how is that? How's it going? It's going really well. Yeah, it's been really good fun so far. Because um, it's my third book, I've sort of done quite a few events in the past, and I wanted this one to feel quite different. Um, I'm, like most writers, I'm not someone who's actually very comfortable sitting on stage on my own and talking for an hour. Um, I hate being the centre of attention. I would much rather be at home gardening and, and just um, basically not have to talk to a room full of people because that's kind of a nightmare for me. Um, but as writers, we have to do this. So again, another of those conflicts, like we become writers because we want to be quiet and uh, not be actors. If we wanted to be actors, we would have become actors. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we have to do it, um, and so you become quite good at it, and I've done a lot of events, and hopefully I'm, well, I don't get that nervous anymore and things like that. But I do increasingly feel like I don't just want to hear my own voice for an hour, and I don't want to keep asking the same few people to come along and support me over and over again. Um, so with this book too, I've tried to do something quite different. Um, all my launches have been with other local writers. Um, and they've all been sort of framed in a slightly different way. So in Vaness, um, I did an event about Highland crime, and there were five of us, so me and four other Highlands crime writers, all writing very different sorts of crime books, but we talked about how 
the Highlands can influence crime writing and the history of Highland crime and the tradition of that and what it means today and how we can push the boundaries of what that is. And it was a really fascinating sort of panel event um, that I enjoyed immensely, not because it was about me, but because it was not about me, because it was about the group of us and that sort of brings up new, um, new things to talk about. And uh, so that was great. And then my event in Edinburgh was with Mary Paulson Ellis, who's uh, another wonderful uh, crime writer. Uh, in, based in the central belt, not Edinburgh, I'm in Edinburgh now, Glasgow. Um, uh, so again, that was really good, and because there was two of us and we were chaired by Jill Tasker, who's also brilliant, we got into discussions that I wouldn't, wouldn't have had otherwise and that I didn't have in the Inverness event, because Mary's really interested in the past and her book touches on the war a lot, so we're sort of talking about how the past can come back and all of that sort of stuff, so it opened up a whole new range of topics that we could discuss. Um, and again, it was, it was wonderful to feel like it wasn't just about me, but it was about sort of comparing two books and pulling out unexpected themes from them, and to me that's a lot more interesting. Um, so today in Edinburgh, I can't remember what city I am in when. Today in Edinburgh I'll be talking to Claire Askew um, and Vicky Adams, uh, and I am really looking forward to that. I don't know what themes are going to come out this time, because that's kind of the beauty of it. Um, I can guess, but I won't. I'll have to come along. Oh. No, this is coming out after yes. the event. Yes, so, I'm sorry, uh, you can't come. Yes, so, um, I don't know what the themes will be, but I think they'll be different again. Yeah. So 15 days ago... Uh, 15 days. Well, <laughs> um, I'm going, so I will be sure to feedback on, on how it is. And, and I will tweet on Instagram about, um, about it. But I'm very much looking forward to it. And... I'm very much looking forward to reading your book. I haven't read it yet because my partner Claire got sent a copy and she read it. Um, but because I'm in the middle of writing my own book, I haven't had the opportunity now for deadline now. So it's not just footloose and fancy free. So I'm having to put aside enjoying myself for a while. Um, but just to end, and as I'm sure everyone asks you all the time, do you have a top tip for someone who is yet to be published but may wish to be, may cover a space on the bookshelf in the future? A top tip? Um, that's really hard, but I'm going to give quite a boring one, which is just to keep going, because this takes a really, really long time. On average, I would say about 10 years to get published. So keep going. Cool. I mean, I think that's very much the best advice that... <laughs> That you can't ever publish a book if you don't write a book. So consider that you're telling off, listener. Um, <laughs> but no, where can people find out more about you, Helen? Uh, I have a website, helensedgwick.com, and I am on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as Helen Sedgwick or Helen Sedgwick Author. So I'm fairly searchable. Um, do come and find me. Twitter is mostly about writing. Facebook is mostly a mix of things and not very much, and Instagram is mostly about gardening and living in the Highlands. So it's a bit of a mix. Cool. Come and say hello. Cool. And so, When the Dead Come Calling is now available from all good bookshops. Um, it's available at non-taxpaying online places as well, but I recommend you go to your local independent bookshop and buy one. And a huge thank you, Adam, for, for joining me today. It's been incredible. So. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me along. This has been great. And if you are listening to this on the days it comes out, then check out Helen's website for more dates on her book tour. 
But for now, I will say au revoir and thank you. And you can find us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, au underscore pod. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Bye-bye. shopping at Golden Hair Books. They're a small independent bookshop in Stockbridge in Edinburgh and I'm delighted that they're sponsoring this podcast. You can find out more at goldenhairbooks.com and you can visit them on St. Stephen Street in Edinburgh. I'd recommend it. Go and see Julie and the team. If you don't know what book you want they will recommend one and I guarantee it will make your day.